The Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return, brought to you by Narconon Suncoast. Hello, Jason. Hello, Joni. How's it going? Here we are. It's another week for the books. I know, it is. It's going by so fast. I can't believe it's already September. I know. I was in a store recently and I started seeing Halloween-themed things for sale and I was like, oh my God, wasn't it just Halloween? Yep. Uh, It's going by so fast, but... You know, it's another, you know, I guess it's another year down from the way I feel. It feels like it was <laughs> wasn't last year that long ago. And, you know, the good news is that we've made a lot of uh, progress in saving lives. Good. Over at Narcanon, we've got lots of people in. It's go- it's very, very busy. We're staying at capacity. And, uh, you know, it's really rewarding to do what we're doing. It's a good a, thing. On a daily, daily basis. Yeah. It's a really good thing that you guys do over there. And I think... We just need to keep getting the message out there and getting more and more people to, you know, download the podcast and listen to the podcast and get others to listen to the podcast because, you know, I just think uh, there's a lot of parents out there who, um, yeah, they just don't know what to do. We've talked about that several times. And, and a lot of them know, just don't know what to do. And a lot of them just don't get it. Yeah. That's the thing. And I run into that quite often is that we'll get families on the phone and they'll say, you know, we think our, you know, our son or daughter is using X, Y, and Z, but I mean, what do we do? Do we just, do we put them in an outpatient clinic? Should I tell them to go to AA meetings? Like a lot of families are really lost right. and don't know what the right thing to do to handle it is. Right. And so we have to walk them through it. And there's actually kind of like a training portion of that where we actually have to train some parents on drugs. Yeah. And train parents on signs and symptoms of drug use. And then finally, you know, give them some sort of solution to deal with it. Because, Mm. you know, while drug use is widespread, while drugs are everywhere, and, you know, it's easy to think, well, everyone knows about them. Everyone knows what they do. Everyone knows. It's not true. There's a lot of people out there that haven't previously been exposed to, you know, the drug culture, drugs in general, until their loved one is using and then they have no idea what to do. Right. And so, you know, we've been helping, you know, get people that information. You know, a good example of that uh, is the Amish community. Right. You know, something that's real interesting is that there's groups of like defected Amish kids Mm -hmm. outside their communities that have decided to leave the Amish community in search of like what they would consider to be like a normal American lifestyle. Right. And what happens is they end up getting involved in drugs and things like that. And so we actually put a public service announcement in an area of the country probably five or six months ago. And all of a sudden we started actually getting phone calls from Amish communities for their kids that have defected out of the community, but that were wrapped up in in drugs. And these Amish people have no clue about drugs. They don't know anything about it because it's something that's real foreign to them. Right. They live in a very sheltered community and all of a sudden they've got a kid that is going in and out of jail, is totally messed up on something that they don't they don't know anything about and they have no clue what to do. And so that's been one, you know, a small population of people that we've been really able to touch. Right. Um and we've had about four Amish kids yeah. come through. I, th- I think it's fascinating. It is really fascinating because people would think, you know, with the Amish community, you know, they're how could they be affected by it? But, you know, drugs are everywhere and they affect anybody. Well, and here's the other side of that coin. Um, if you if you're an average Joe, you do watch television, you're going to get some news, even if you just go to Facebook, there's going to be some news coming up. Sure. And then you know that there's an opioid epidemic. Right. And you also know 
if you go out and, and contact anybody or, you know, you have a lot of interaction with people, mm-hmm. you know that there's a drug problem right. and you know that it's affecting all different sectors of society. But it's my understanding that the Amish community is somewhat of a sheltered community mm-hmm. and they don't do computers and they don't do television. And so while I can definitely see the benefits to that, it also means that you're not necessarily aware of the dangers right. that and are existent in today's society. I mean, the only form of media that they really have is the newspaper. Right. And that's actually where we placed our public service announcements, uh, you know, about how to get someone into treatment and the fact that we offer intervention services. Yeah. And um, that's, the, that's their only uh, media. They don't, right. like you said, they don't have Facebook, they don't have TV, they don't have anything else. And so to them, they're not that aware Right. Of the major problem that's out there, you know, in the world in general, but they might be aware of like the fact that, you know, a group of their kids that are outside the community are having a problem, but I don't think they get the big scope of everything. And like I said, it's not something they're exposed to regularly. Yeah. And, and so that's been a really cool thing we've done this past year is like getting into various groups that we might not have been able to touch in the past. Yeah. And so I thought that was like a really neat thing. That kind of transpired. I like it. Is there any opportunity for you or anybody from Narconon to do any sort of presentation to that community? Yeah. And we're actually trying to put something together to actually physically go out there and get in communication with these communities of Amish folks um, throughout the country. And there's you know, various communities kind of dispersed around the country. A lot of them happen to be in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And then obviously you've got Lancaster, Pennsylvania, which is what everyone thinks of right? Um, when it comes to Amish people. But there's a lot of communities throughout the Midwest. And so we're trying to go out there and actually speak to people, give them information and give them the knowledge that they need to help their loved ones that may, you know, have left the community in search of a different lifestyle and ran into trouble. I think, yeah, I think that's a brilliant idea because like I say, you know, you've got a fairly insulated community and that's fine, but you need to be aware of what's out there. You need to be aware of what's going on out there. Yeah. Being naive to it right now is not the way to go. Exactly. Um, And you know, I don't think the the Amish communities are are choosing to be naive about it. They just... They don't know. They don't know. They don't, they don't have access. They don't have access to that information on, on like a general basis. And the things that they know are what's happening in their communities, which yeah. are, are separated yeah. from the rest. So well, I've seen it also because like my kids went to until a certain age, they went to private school. Yeah. They went to a little private school that really honestly did not have a drug problem. But we would talk about what was happening, you know, in society. And right. I remember you know, I remember, I don't remember how old my boys were when Kurt Cobain, you know, oh. committed suicide, but we had a lot of discussion about that because they were just starting to get into rock music. And so there was, you know, it was a, it was a little bit of a, you know, kind of an adjustment to their reality when that happened, because that was, that was sort of somebody that they knew, if you will, sure. somebody that was, you know, in their frame of reference and, and they were like, oh, Okay. Yeah. And Kurt yeah. Cobain was notoriously, you know, a heroin addict. Mm-hmm. And so that was something that kind of got brought up is like, well, people are actually doing heroin. Mm-hmm. And, you know, back then, I think that was 1993 okay. when he died and he committed suicide. And, you know, there yeah. wasn't a huge opiate problem yet. There wasn't, you know, a wide stream understanding of the fact that heroin is out there. Yeah. And it, it just, it's almost like it was really, really. What's the word I'm looking for? It's like a slow progression into that. Mm-hmm. I mean, I remember when I got 
first exposed to the fact that there was heroin addicts and there was uh, opiate crisis. And I think it was in 2001, uh, I was working or 2002, I was working in a restaurant and I was driving a kid home and I was having my own issues with substance abuse. But this kid was like, yeah, I'm a heroin addict. I was like, what are you talking about? And he pulls out a syringe and shoots up in the passenger seat of my car. Wow. And I was like, okay, wait, I don't know what I just saw. But I was like, heroin addict? What are you talking about? Who does heroin? Right. That's not 1969. Right. Um, And yeah, it was kind of a slow progression into that. And so, yeah, with Kurt Cobain dying, you know, a lot of parents had to talk to their kids kind of about that that situation. Because anyone my age, I'm 36, back then, a lot of us listened to that music. We listened to Nirvana. And that was, he was an icon. Yeah. So you're kind of the same age as my older son, Adam. He would have been 11 when Cobain did that. And and Brian would have been, you know, eight or nine. And they were just kind of starting to listen to that kind of music. Mm -hmm. And you know, like I say, it was a rude awakening, but but even though their school environment was a very sheltered school environment because it was a small private school, you know, they did get some of that reality. You know, it's interesting. I think you have you have the situation with the Amish community where they are a very insulated community and are not exposed to this type of thing. But then you also have like other religious communities where they just think it doesn't apply to them. <laughs> you know, yeah. like they're aware of it, but they just think it doesn't apply to them. Like, yeah. oh, we're staunch Catholics or we're, you know, we're Orthodox Jews. It's not going to happen yeah, my, to our kids. My, my, and, my, my, and, my mom used to say, well, how is our son an addict? Jewish kids don't get addicted. It's, I guess they see? do. <laughs> well, that's, but that's a, that is a, it's a valid point, mm-hmm. you know, that the, and we've talked about this over and over and over again, that parents get this idea, not my kid, it's not going to happen to my kid. And it, your kid is not that safe. Okay. I mean, unless you're going to lock them in their bedroom for the rest of their lives with no computer and no cell phone. They're not that safe. They're going to be exposed to it. Right. And then on the flip side of that, there's a lot of times, and this is, I think it's almost just as sad as, you know, when a parent has a child that's addicted, but there's times where a child has a parent that's addicted mm-hmm. and the the roles get reversed to where the child actually has to take care of the, the parent mm-hmm. because the parent's struggling with addiction. And, I, you know, we hear about that all the time at Narcanon yep. is that people will call and say, you know, my mom, dad is addicted to X, Y, and Z. And it's like... I couldn't. I couldn't imagine what that'd be like, right? Because you know, the traditionally parents take care of the children. The children don't take care of the parents, and when that role gets reversed, it's 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 kind of odd yeah. for the person going through it, and it is sad. But and yet, your parents were they to have a bad injury could very easily be prescribed oxycontin easily, and unless you know you're like aware of what that is and how addictive it is and you're very careful with it, it's not, you know, it's not out of the question. And I think that happens, it happens with parents just as much as it happens with kids. Yeah. All, you know? all it takes is that perfect storm to occur when you take that drug yeah. is you've got to be at a certain part of like a certain point or part in your life. You have issues going on problems going on just like anyone does yeah. in life. And you take that drug at that specific time and something goes off in your mind and all of a sudden you realize, this drug is doing something for me that I can't do for myself. That's right. That's literally all it takes. Yep. And it's that quick, perfect storm of events that occur while you take that drug. And th- once you have that realization, it's like game over. Right. And you, you've, you're in it. You know, and Joanne Peterson from Learn to Cope made a very good point. 
And that was that for parents, because I said, if there's one thing you'd like to say to parents, what would it be? And she said, when you take your child to a doctor and they've had some sort of a sports injury or some kind of injury or some kind of surgical procedure, and they give you a prescription for painkillers, you need to ask, is this painkiller addictive? And what is this painkiller and how dangerous is it? And similarly, for a lot of us who have elderly parents, my parents are gone now, but I remember very clearly um, my mother, I don't know, she was just having a bad day. And she's like in her late 80s and they, they freaking put her on antidepressants. And she ended up then having a mild heart thing happen. And my dad is like, well, what changed? And they're, well, we put her on antidepressants. He goes, get her off of it right now. She's not depressed. Okay, she had a bad day. Mm-hmm. Okay, this can happen, you know? Oh, but yeah. that's but that but that's elderly people. And, you know, a lot of people in my age range in my sixties, you know, you've got elderly parents. And your parents are getting up there. And so when it gets to the point where they're starting to go to the doctor for this, that, or the other malady, mm-hmm. you have to be, you have to ask the questions. Right. The same way that I asked with Brian when he was prescribed something for uh, asthma, you know, it's like you have to ask the, you have to ask the tough question. You can't, it's no longer, you can't have the mindset, oh, well, if the doctor says to do it, it's okay. Well, back in the day, you could do that. Yeah. There was a different scene back in the day. That's right. And when I say back in the day, I almost talk about like, you know, when my parents were kids. Yeah, 50s. Right. Yeah. You know, and 60s. You didn't have to worry about the doctor putting you on some sort of ridiculous medication because they mostly didn't exist at that point. Right. It's the same thing I always say about, you know, back in the day, you didn't have to worry about eating organic. Right. Because everything just by default was organic was until, better. Yeah. you know, until later on, you know, through uh, the 1900s up until the 1990s, I think is when genetic modification started. Actually, I think it was the 1980s. Although I will say that when I was a little girl in the housewife era of the 50s and 60s, they started coming out with a lot of box mixes. And I don't know that the box mix that my mother used to make cakes when I was mm-hmm. young is that much different than the box mix that exists today. I don't know that it's that the much different. The box mix? Well, like, <laughs> yeah, like, you know, brownies or cake yeah. mix. I mean, making cakes from a box was a huge deal. Mm-hmm. Now, you know, I, I, I pride myself, if I'm going to make a cake now, it's going to be the real stuff. It's going to yeah. be flour and sugar, and I just do it that way. But... Anyway, but you're right that there that we didn't have there were things we didn't have to worry about when we right. were right, and and you know you trusted your doctor, mm-hmm. you did, you did, you trusted that when you went to them, they had your health and your well being as their number one priority, and you know it's not the case anymore, and it hasn't been the case since the 1990s when you know all the pharmaceutical companies started making blitzes on doctors. Exactly. It's just it got very twisted because it, there became an interest in money. And that's what it came down to. And, you know, I, I can't remember where I heard this. And I think it was a, a actual doctor that said this in some sort of interview. But he said, you know, there's no money in a cure. That's for exactly a right. That's there, exactly right. There's money in medicine. That's right. That's sickening. That's it. That is sickening. Yeah. That is sickening. And don't get me started on donating to the American Cancer Society. Where's the cure? Because there's money in the medicine. Exactly. And guess what? When we cure cancer, somebody, a lot of people are out of a job. I mean, I think the cancer is it, like the cancer industry, and I hate to call it that, but the cancer but industry is. rakes in like trillions of dollars a year. Yeah. And if you cure, if we, if we cured cancer, 
There you go. Look at all those people out of a job. Oh, now we're going to start talking about conspiracy theories. No, we won't theories. do that. Okay, we won't go there. <laughs> we start okay. talking about conspiracies. Yeah. But, you know, recently... I don't think so much as conspiracy, but I think it is all about the, the almighty money. buck. It is. It's I mean, all about the almighty buck and how you can make money. I mean, you look at... You know, when the pill mills were in the state of Florida, a lot of those pill mills were run by retired doctors. Oh, and I, oh, yeah, retired doctors and some like that was their job. I know. And you're and a doctor is supposed to take an oath, an oath. Hippocratic oath. Help, the Hippocratic oath to help people. It's like, hello, selling drugs to people for cash is not helping people. You know, that's how the pill mills worked. You filled the prescription in the pill mill. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You didn't yeah. take it to a pharmacy. No, I know. was filled there. With you cash. Go, yeah, brought you in cash, yeah. Walked out with gallon baggies full of pills. That's right. I Insanity. know Insanity. I know. But that, I mean... I think it's sick that we value money over people's lives. Well, yeah. Or some people do. Let's say. Yeah. I'm not going to say we. It was you and I don't. <laughs> Obviously not. <laughs> uh, and, you know, I, I, I always thought it was interesting to think about what if what if OxyContin never existed? What if some of these painkillers right. never existed? I mean, we might not have yep. the situation we have today. And, you know, the situation we have today calls for us to, you know, Pull, pull aside one day a year for Overdose Awareness Day. Yeah. And recently uh, was Overdose Awareness Day. That's right. And it, it's a day where across, I think it's actually international. So it's yep. even outside it's the United States. International Overdose Awareness Day. Yeah. We take time to you know remember those lost opiate addiction, drug overdoses in general, and to also kind of come together and support each other as a community. And okay, first of all, I think that's good. Have a day, you know, to pay some tribute to what's gone, what's going on, to come but, together as a community. But the fact that we have to, is, wow, yeah, our, every day should be overdose awareness day. Shouldn't just be one day a year where we kind of get together and remember people and support each other and do some drug education, hand out Narcan. It's like we should be doing that every single day because overdoses happen every single day, right. and addiction happens every single day and doesn't take a break or magically disappear at one point. And we should be educating the public every single day and handing out Narcan every single day. That's this right. is not something we just need to do one day a year. That's right. That's something that has to happen every day because, you know, we're at the point now. I read this statistic uh, about two days ago. We're at the point now where we've lost more people in the opiate epidemic than we lost in World War II and World War II combined as far as Americans. You, you said World War II and World War II. You mean World, World War, War I, I and, and World, World War II? I and World War II okay. combined. Wow. About that, the American deaths that occurred, we've uh, surpassed that uh, currently. So guess what, people? We're at war. There is a war on drugs. I remember there used to, that used to be- Ronald Reagan. A, a, yeah, a war on drugs. You know, that war, you know, needs to kind of come back because it needs to be a war on drugs. Yeah. I mean, the Reagan administration coined that term. Mm-hmm. I think actually it was Nancy Reagan mm. that coined that term. It was like, we have a war on drugs. Um, and- you know, there's a lot of like controversy whether that was like a good thing or a bad thing. Was they pumped a bunch of money into fighting the war on drugs, and they also um, changed uh, incarceration penalties for certain drugs. Well, and it, it, it I'm got kind of they implemented it properly, but right. I'm saying we need to have a war on drugs. Yeah, we need to fight this thing. We, that's what I mean. We yeah. need to fight it, and we need to fight it every single day, like you're saying. Not just, you know, I think I think that the overdose awareness day is also supposed to be. You know, kind of like when you have Memorial Day, you know, to kind of remember those people. But the truth of the matter is that it, it people do die every single day. And we need to continue to make people aware of it. And we need to, you know, get more 
um, is that Narcan? That's Narcan. I have oh, to carry. I have to carry. Okay. I have to carry this in my bag everywhere I go, because okay. I I never know if someone is going to overdose somewhere in my vicinity. So I I just reached over and grabbed that in my bag to show you. I think it's weird and sad that the point we're at now that I carry Narcan with me with my bag everywhere I go. Right. And it's a nasal spray, as but you, you can see. But you have to you have to have it. And the, and tell people what is Nar- what does Narcan do? I mean, what's the value of Narcan? Okay, so so Narcan is an opiate reversal drug it actually reverses the action of an overdose so if a person's taken too much of whatever opiate and they've gone unconscious they've stopped breathing and are in the middle of an overdose um narcan um can be administered in a nasal spray and what it does is it like i said it reverses the action of the opiates and pops a person out of the overdose um okay but here's a stupid question if somebody is unconscious yes how do you administer a nasal spray because it's not like they can go no uh, it this, just goes in. It just goes. It just goes you, in through the mucus, the membranes, you in the shoot nose. It in? Okay. Yeah, you can see there's a plunger here on the bottom. Yeah, and you basically just put in the person's nose and push the plunger and sprays it the okay. mist into their nose and it goes in through the membranes. Almost kind of like Pulp Fiction with the hypodermic in the heart. That, well, that was the way you did it. That was a uh, that's an adrenaline shot right, that they used to use back in the day. You had to get it right into the heart. It's a lot easier now. Now anybody, it depends on your state. Is the state laws kind of vary right now on Narcan? But I know at least in Florida, you can go to a pharmacy and any layperson can carry Narcan and administer it to a person that is overdosing. Now in Florida, in Florida, how do you get it? You can go to a pharmacy, Walgreens, you can, CVS. You just ask them for it. You don't have to have like a. You can go up to the pharmacy and ask for Narcan. You get a quick uh, training from the pharmacist, and you can carry Narcan. That's how I can have it in my bag. I mean, okay. I don't have any special credentialing that allows me to carry it. I've been trained on how to use it. Right. And so I carry it because here's the thing. If I'm in the grocery store and someone on like aisle three overdoses, I, I want, I if, if it was my loved one, I'd want someone there to have Narcan. Yeah. And I don't know if you, you remember Joanne said that, that there was one of her, her, the members of Learn to Cope was a jury member. Right. Was a member of a jury. And another jury member was overdosing. Right. Or somebody in the courtroom was overdosing. And that jury member had Narcan because they were a member of Learn to Cope and they could actually, like, you know, solve it for the person. Yeah. I, I'm, I was talking to my mom about this, I think, yesterday. Learn to Cope, the organization, and Joanne herself is one of the reasons that we can all carry Narcan now. Wow. They actually helped pass this yeah. to where lay people can carry it and administer yeah. it. Because, you know, when someone's overdosing, you don't have much time no. to get them breathing again before they're, they're dead. You either use that or they die. Right. And so, yeah, I, I mean, I carry this everywhere. Yeah. I actually have two of these. Yeah. And this is a, uh, this is a four milligram dose of Narcan. Um, and so hopefully I'll never have to use it. I yeah, hope I never but, have to, but this is where you know, the fact that you have it with you means you probably won't ever have to use it. But if you didn't have it, you'd need it. Well, if you saw an empty things. one of these, I'd probably have a story to tell. Oh, if what? If I had an empty one, yeah, an empty you would. blister pack, exactly. I'd probably have a story to tell, but luckily I don't. Yeah. And I, I hope I never have to use it, but like that's where our society is at. Right. We have to carry overdose reversal drugs yeah. with us just in case. And guess what, parents? If you've got Narcan and you have to use it on your loved one, that needs to be a wake-up call. Because Narcan is just a quick fix to avoid death. But at that point... You better be getting your loved one into rehab. Yeah, immediately. I mean, if someone overdoses and Narcan is administered, even if a person overdoses and they pop out of it, Narcan isn't administered. If a person overdoses, they have a drug problem. They have to go immediately yeah. into treatment. Yeah. That is your only option because I, you know, I still run into this. There's some people out there that think, well, if they just get a job and get their act together and learn how to be financially responsible, that they'll be okay. And it's like, 
Uh, no, because the reason they're not financially responsible is because all their money goes to drugs. Exactly. The reason they don't have a job is because they're a drug addict. And so we have to handle the drugs. Right. And then all those other things are possible. Right. And so that's a consideration of a lot of people have before, sending, you know, of not wanting to send their loved one to treatment. And, you know, first and foremost, we have to save someone's life before they can have a life. And we have to handle the drugs before they can have a life. That's right. And, you know, that's why you and I do this podcast. That's why we do what we do at Narcanon. Yeah. And... And I think we need to make the point because it's September, yeah, which means we're headed right into the holidays. And Quicker we, than you can think. And we had this conversation once before, and I, you know, I admit it. I I don't have an addict in my immediate family. I admit that. That's why we interview people. That's why we get stories from other people. Mm-hmm. But I don't ever want a mother to lose their child, or a child to lose their parents to drugs. I mean, I I I'm very. I'm emotional about that. You saw me when we interviewed Derek. I, yeah. I get very emotional about that. I, I can't even imagine what that's like. But I remember you saying that oftentimes as we head into the holidays, it becomes a somewhat slow period for rehab because people think, oh, well, we'll do it after the holiday. But look at what having an addict in your house or at your family gathering is going to do. And, you know... It's a, it's, it's a, insane. It's a, nut, it's a nutty viewpoint to have, but I want to bring it up now because we're heading into the holidays, yeah. and it doesn't matter if it's Christmas Eve. If you know your child is on drugs, get him into rehab. Right, and it is it is something I, I run up against, yeah. and, and people at the center run up against. We're gonna wait until after Thanksgiving. No, uh, yeah, no, 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 he's no. got he's got to be here till you know through Thanksgiving. At least he can be with the family, and then he can go. And I'll I'll, t- I'll say to the families, <laughs> do you know how that's gonna go? I'll tell you how it's gonna go. Okay, so is everybody going to lock up their jewelry? Is everybody going to lock up their iPads and laptops? Usually, what happens is that families have this unrealistic, like, creation in their mind that just for Thanksgiving they're going to be okay. Yeah, they can control they're gonna, it. They're, yeah. gonna, they're not going to get high. They're yeah. going to be there with the family, and everything's going to be okay. We can love them and love them and love them, and then afterwards, and we can put them in treatment. It's going to be okay. Wrong. I'm going to tell you how it's going to go. Families will think that, and the addict's not going to change any part of their behavior. So while the families think, well, at least they'll be there with the family, they're going to be busy shooting up in the bathroom, running around for hours trying to find drugs. Once they find the drugs, then they come back and they'll be shooting up in the bathroom. And then after that, they're going to face plant their mashed potatoes at dinner. Someone's going to kick them under the table. They're going to pop their head up, say, I'm just really tired. And they're going to go to their room for the rest of the night. And that's going to be that. Right. They're not going to spend time with the family. They're not going to just snap it together momentarily. There's a possibility that they could overdose and die on Thanksgiving. And how would that be on your family reunion? How would that be if somebody overdosed and died? Just imagine, is that what you want for your family reunion? And you can't, Joanne said this too, you can't love somebody out of addiction. No. You cannot love somebody enough that they will become clean. The addictiveness of drugs is not going to be countered by your love for that person. It's not going to happen. I don't care who you think you are or how good you think you are or how motivated you think you might be. It's not going to work. I wish it would. I, I think I that'd be too. great. That would be wonderful if it yep. were. It yep. would. But that's, that's, that's not reality. Exactly. It's absolutely not reality. And, you know, there's too, too many families that make the the mistake of waiting till after the holidays, but then after the holidays, the option to get them in treatment is is gone. It's too late. 
It's too late. And because the other thing is that the holidays are very stressful on the addicts. And so, because you mentioned that one time, yeah. so that oftentimes they use more or they overdose mm-hmm. during the holidays because it's a stressful time. Right. And a lot of times, you know, the holidays, holidays can be tough for people for any, for any, yeah. you know, multitude of reasons. For addicts, it's a lot harder during the holidays because, you know, as an addict and as someone that's been an addict, there's a part of you that knows what you're doing is awful, terrible, and completely wrong. But the drugs have got a, such a tight grip on you, it doesn't matter. Right. And so when the holidays comes up and, you know, family you don't see all the time is you now coming to the house and you're expected to be there and, and you know, have, go to all these family gatherings and dinners and whatever, it's really stressful for the addict because they have to try to maintain their composure through it. And, and lot, hide the fact that they're an addict because the Aunt, that Aunt an Betty addict. doesn't know that they're an addict. Right. And, you know, Uncle George doesn't know that they're an addict. And Grandma and Grandpa may not know. Right. You know, and Great Grandma Bessie doesn't know. Right. So and let's lot, see how well we can hide this. Right. And a lot of times, you know, either they try to hide it to the best of their ability and it doesn't work or they just can't confront the holidays at all and don't show up. Yeah. Which is like terrible, which is terrible for the families because then they you know, they have an addict child does running around somewhere and they don't don't know know where they are exactly and they've got the whole family at the house most of which who may not know what the situation is with you know the son or daughter and so it's a really stressful time for everybody you know the addict and the families and so i implore families all the time like get them in treatment before and now is a really good time right because you know what at least you can have a christmas and thanksgiving or that's right kwanzaa or hanukkah or whatever and you can enjoy it knowing your loved one is safe. Exactly. And that they're not going to overdose in their car at a Walmart. And and here's the thing. Would you would you rather, you know, have a family gathering like Jason just described or would you even want to maybe come to a facility like Narconon where y'all probably have turkey? We do. And have turkey with your loved one mm-hmm. who you know is getting better. Right. Do you know which would you rather do? I, I, I think to me it's a no-brainer. Some families think it's more stressful to send their kid to treatment before the holidays, but I say I get that. But it's going to be way more stressful to have them there during it, right? Because it's going to be. And it might not make it. You know, they, they, you, there's only two ways out of addiction. One is you get clean, and the other is you overdose and die. Right. Do you know? And so that's a fifty-fifty chance. And so which would you rather? Would you know if? That's not, those aren't good odds, you know? No. And so if I got that for a choice, I'm hoping that parents, if you're listening, if you suspect your loved one is an addict, get them into rehab now. I can't not, believe we're already talking about not, Christmas again. I know, but it's coming That's up crazy. in the next three months. Hey, I want to change the subject. I went to your blog. You wrote a blog about um, Delray Beach. Delray Beach, Tell Florida. me about Delray Beach. Tell me what they're doing down there that is a good thing. Okay, so... For those people that don't know where Delray Beach is, it's in southeastern Florida. Mm-hmm. Now, southeastern Florida has been considered the quote-unquote mecca of recovery on the on the east coast of the U.S. By mecca of recovery, I mean like between West Palm Beach and Miami, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of rehabs, outpatient clinics, halfway houses, detox centers. Yeah, yeah it's, it's all 12-step based. Yeah. Um, they, you know, they use the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous and Narcotics Anonymous, and People flock there from all over the country to go to treatment and go to detox and then go to outpatient and go to a halfway house. And they go there with the promise 
of getting help, that they're going to get better, that there's they're going to go to a place that really cares about them. They're going to get treatment. They're going to transition them from the highest level of care to the lowest level of care and that they're going to be okay. And over the years, let's just say the the industry of rehabilitation out there has started to fall victim to very sketchy ethics levels. Right. Um, and a lot of people out there saw that, you know, there's a budding industry here of drug rehabilitation. I hate to say it like that, but that's what it's they, the truth. that's what they consider it to be. And so people want to get into it to make a lot of money and bill insurances and stuff like that. It's, you know, out there, they have people called junkie hunters that actually go in search of displaced homeless drug addicts that have good insurance policies, encourage them to get high if they're clean so they can go to detox, then go to a rehab, then go to an outpatient clinic, and then go to a halfway house All that, all that, with all those setters working with each other, and the addict gets paid, and the quote-unquote junkie hunter gets paid commissions based on it. And so after years of that happening and things getting really like kind of disgusting with how they're doing things, they've actually created an anti-patient brokering law in Florida. You can't pay referrals per head okay because out there they kind of ruined it right for you know right anyway so like i said it became is become a huge industry in southeastern florida yep you know as you know drug rehabilitation in general and so you know you've got a lot of questionable halfway houses and and rehabs and detoxes out there and you've got questionable people running them and questionable people going into them and you know what delray beach started doing is they started to see that there's like these really shady halfway houses that are operating throughout their city right and so they've started to shut them down but what happens is if they shut down these halfway houses you've now got displaced homeless addicts with nowhere to go and they probably got like a day's notice like hey this has been shut down you need to like figure something out right and a lot of times families are like yeah you're not coming home so we're we're not going to do that right you need to figure it out and you know some do find another halfway house to go to um sometimes just for the same thing to happen again and so you know, the municipal police department saw like there's a ton of displaced homeless addicts out here due to, you know, the shady recovery homes out here you know, getting shut down. Now we've got this, you know, problem of homeless problem, drug yeah. addicts that don't live that aren't from here. There's a lot of the people out there trying to get recovery from, you know, different areas of the country. And right. so what they did was they hired a woman uh, as an advocate to come in and work with the police department. And her sole job is to find resources for homeless displaced addicts that don't have any options and have nowhere to go. Mm. And to, so basically they're trying to keep them sober because by keeping them sober reduces, you know, crime rates. Because, right. you know, if there's a bunch of homeless drug addicts or, you know, reverted or relapsed people and drug addicts that were clean at one point got displaced out of a halfway house and now on the streets and started using again by getting them help again and getting them resources to get help keeps their crime down because once they're using they're going to commit petty crimes and different things like that to get their drugs right and so it's kind of a win-win for everybody and so this woman her whole job is an advocate for people that are struggling with addiction and she works directly with the police department and also Anytime that a police officer responds to an overdose and Narcan is administered, she's notified. Okay. And then she will contact the the addict that overdosed and 
offer them, you know, a bed and a detox, um, another recovery home to stay with that that they've already checked out and is okay and is good. Right. Um, finding them resources for, you know, soup kitchens and things like that to kind of keep them off the street and moving on the right path because it's kind of unfortunate that if you go out if you go out to that area of the country with the hopes of getting clean and then the very place that's keeping you clean gets shut down because the people that run it are just after money and have very, very questionable business practices that's not entirely their fault. Exactly. But then they're a victim of circumstance. Right. And so they have to kind of figure it out. And a lot of times it's real hard to figure out. And a lot of times you can take an apathetic viewpoint on life at that point. Because you might have done all this hard work to just be made homeless again. And so this woman is is trying to help all those displaced, you know, addicts find resources and get off the streets and get back into recovery and trying to move forward in their lives. I think that's great because they're actually taking a step forward to do something about the problem that's been created in their town. Yeah. Um, It's definitely proactive. I like that. I mean, I was in a halfway house actually at one point in Delray beach Mm -hmm. and I always thought about this and I thought it was really weird. A lot of the halfway houses out in Southeastern Florida are in the ghetto. We used to have people like drug dealers that post up like directly across the street from the halfway house. Yeah. Waiting for one of us to wait to pick us off. Yeah. It was like, this is, how how do people do this? How do we, and people were, were like relapsing out of this halfway house left and right. Yeah. Because you'd have dealers like literally stand across the street, you know, showing you things. Yeah. Wow. Just waiting for you to have a weak moment. Weird place. Yeah. Doesn't it make was, a whole lot of sense. No, it was real strange. And so, you know, I'm not a believer that halfway houses are necessarily necessary for everybody. Right. I feel like if you do a good program that handles your addiction, you should just be able to transition back into the real world and just like do that and not have to stay at a at a sober home where you know you're highly monitored, you're highly drug tested, all this stuff because the idea is to return a person back to a normal functioning lifestyle. Right. The idea is to return a person back to being a contributing member of society. And so Yeah, but know. I think there are two things we talk about all the time that differentiate Narconon from other rehab programs that make it so they don't need to do a halfway house. Correct. One being the detox, that the sauna detox program that actually gets the drugs out of the fat tissues of the body, which no other rehabilitation program does. True. None anywhere. If it's not an Arcanon, they're not doing that. Right. And the second thing is the life improvement courses that directly address the problems that that individual was having in their own life that led to drugs or alcohol being the solution. And I think that until the Narcanon program is embraced all over the country, in every city, and I'm not saying this as a sales job for Narcanon, but here's the thing. Those two points set Narcanon apart from every other rehab program. They do. And show me another rehab program that has an exact workable technology that works 75% of the time, and then we'll talk about it. Right. But it, it's not there, do you it, know? Because those are those elements are not included, and they have to be included. Yeah, and a lot of families are shocked when we tell them, like, no, they don't have to go to a halfway house after. Like, why would they do that? Well, well don't, isn't that what you do? I'm like, well, some modalities, that's the way you do it. With Narconon, it's like, we just have them go back to life right um obviously you, you, know, you monitor them, them you, and you yeah you want to get them yeah. set up and you want to get them you know set up to be successful but you know the, the thing that freaks me out about halfway houses and like from someone like an Arcanon graduate going to an, a, a halfway house is like okay for all the parents out there that are not aware of this 
there are tons of drugs in every single halfway house in the United States. Just because it's a halfway house doesn't mean there's no drugs there. Right. People frequently relapse yeah. in halfway houses. And so I always tell families, like, your son or daughter is probably safer in their own apartment yeah. where they know they're not bringing drugs in <laughs> yeah. than they are, like, living in a halfway house after and having, you know, the sketchy occurrence of, like, the person that they're a roommate with sneaks drugs in and then offers it to them. And then it's, like, a true test of, you know, everything that they've just learned. You know, it's a lot safer if they're not there yeah. afterwards because they wouldn't run into that. Yep. And so, you know, it's just one of those things that, um, you know, some people believe in it, some people don't. It's, you know, yep. I guess. Well, and we say, you know, we don't diss other rehab programs because they work for some people. They do. But the thing, those are the two points that sent, set Narcanon aside. You know, Narcanon has a higher success rate than I think any other program out there. It and that, I think that's why, because a lot of people don't understand that just stopping the drug is not the end all the drug does the drugs lodge in the fat tissues of the body and so someone quits taking the drug and they get all excited and they're all energetic and they're out there and they're exercising in the heat and they start sweating and the what's in the fatty tissue gets released back in the body and boom there's the craving let's go let's go hit it again and it's game over at that point yeah exactly but nevertheless I st- I'm still sitting here in disbelief that we're already talking about getting people back, you know, getting people into treatment before the holidays because, you know, the holiday the holiday time just turns into such an unfortunate time for so many I families. Know. And, you know, it becomes really difficult, especially when you know, you're a counselor and you see all this happening and you see the wreckage that, you know, addiction causes, you know, 365 days a year. Right. But there's a different, you know, there's a, there's a difference about the holidays. Yep. I mean, those are very family-centric yep. events. And so... You know, for for us that work at Narconon, it's hard to talk to these families that are, have this consideration of keeping them until the holidays are over because – and, I, and I, I'm bringing it up again because it's a point that bothers me. Is yeah. I, I don't want families to think that that's the right thing to do because it's not. It's not going to be okay. It's not going to be – Just a- because it's the holidays and everybody's out there and they're singing songs and there's lights and there's all kinds of fun stuff – that doesn't make any difference in the addiction. It doesn't help it. Doesn't. it. And it, if anything, it probably hinders it because someone who's addicted is not going to be able to experience the same kind of joy that, you know, a little kid, you know, experiences that time of year. You're not going to be able to. Very you know? true. Very and so true. It, you're, not, you're not helping if you do that. You may think, oh, I'm helping the family. Or I'm helping the addict if I can just keep them here and have them experience Christmas. Wrong. It's that's not it's not helping. You know, we actually last year we actually had a woman call for her mother on Christmas Eve saying, I spoke to you guys a couple months ago and I was thinking about getting her in before the holidays and everything has gotten so bad I have to get her out of here tonight. Right. And we, and we did. Yep. And you know, I don't want families to go through that. And, and you know, okay, if you want to get it done before the holidays, guess what? Do it now. Do it now. You might have the hope that your addict might get through the program and be home for Christmas, but you need to do it now, you know? Absolutely. And if you are listening to this podcast and it's mid-October, you need to do it now. <laughs> and if you haven't found this podcast until the week before Thanksgiving, 
You need to do it now. And you know what? If you found this podcast and it's next August, you need to do it now. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> you do. And, um, you know, hopefully there's lots of people listening to us. I think there are. Yep. And, and I we're think gonna, and we'll keep promoting and we'll get more, you know, and just keep putting it out there and keep promoting it and keep putting it there. And, you know, for parents who need a support group, check out Learn to Cope, learntocope.org, L-E-A-R-N-2, digit 2, cope. Dot org, And, you know, you've if you've got a loved one that's addicted, you need to go to narcononsuncoast.org and you need to check it out. Or you can call 877-339-3324. But don't wait. Don't wait for the holidays. The holidays are not going to make a difference in the addiction. They really aren't. And all you're do, doing is prolonging a super dangerous situation. I mean, just uber dangerous. There's only two ways out of drug addiction. And one is rehab and one is death. And so let's, you guys, take the rehab choice. Let's take the, let's Make take the, the right choice. Which is the path of least resistance. Exactly. It honestly is. Exactly. So. Well, thank you, Jason. Thank you. Until next time. Until next time, I'm going to be interviewing Pamela Seafeld, who is a pharmacologist, and she uses pharmacy-grade essential oils and minerals and vitamins to get people off of certain dangerous drugs like psychiatric drugs that you cannot just stop taking because they can kill you. Mm -hmm. So she's going to talk about that and she's going to talk about what she sees from her perspective. And then we'll talk again, you and I, and then we're going to have a very special interview coming up. We are. And we'll tell you more about that as we get closer. In the meantime, we're going to keep fighting the good fight and we're going to keep getting the word out there. There is hope. You're not alone. In fact, if you go to narcononsuncoast.org, you can there's a chat window and you can quite anonymously chat with someone from Narconon and you'll you'll feel better if you do that. Absolutely. So I encourage everybody to do that. Yes. We'll talk next week. You got it, Johnny. Take care. Bye-bye. You have been listening to the Addiction Podcast, Point of No Return. For more information, call 877-339-3324 or visit www.narcononsuncoast.org. Narconon is a non-12-step rehabilitation program based on the works of L. Ron Hubbard. 